0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Tech Podcast. I'm John Tomey, the founder of Urban Tech, and your guide to the intersection of cities and tech. My conversation today is with political strategist and venture capitalist, Bradley Tusk. You might have heard Tusk's name before as he served as senior advisor and campaign manager to mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg. He was communications director for Chuck Schumer. And after his time in government, he was Uber's first political advisor. The reason why I wanted to have Bradley on the podcast is because he's one of the most candid speakers and is able to cut through a lot of the bullshit, frankly, that politics at the local, state, and federal level is known for. He offers very candid insights, details, and thoughts for how companies and local leaders can maximize the potential of our cities. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So... I'm here with Bradley Tusk. Thank you for taking the time and what's been a crazy week. Obviously, earlier today, the House moved forward to impeach President Trump for the second time. This isn't a political podcast, so we're not gonna break down that too much unless it can maybe be connected to cities and tech. But thank you for coming and taking the time on what is probably a busy week.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for having
0: me I know a lot of people are super familiar with your background, probably who read urban tech. But maybe if you want to give the audience an idea on what you're focused on. I know you're in a lot of different areas.
1: Yeah, sure. Do you want me to start from my, kind of my, my background or just what I do right now?
0: Maybe just quick background on the Bloomberg time, politics, and then just really what sure. you're focused on right now. I know you've talked a lot about the background oh. before.
1: Yeah, yeah. So start off in government politics with my Bloomberg campaign manager. worked for him at City Hall. I spent four years as the deputy governor of Illinois, a couple of years in Washington as Chuck Schumer's communications director. And then in the 2010s, started a bunch of different companies, Tusk Strategies, which is a consulting firm, Tusk Ventures, which is a venture capital fund, Tusk Philanthropies, which is a foundation that promotes mobile voting and and some other causes, Ivory Gaming. Ran a bunch of campaigns to legalize rideshare around the, the U.S., a bunch of stuff like that, like that. And then right now, i say the things that I do are one, I'm the CEO of Touch Ventures. And we're, as far as I know, the only venture fund that really focuses on the intersection of, of regulation and technology. I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but we invest in seed and series A companies in highly regulated industries. Um, I'm chairman of the Every Game Acquisition Corporation, it's a public company on the NASDAQ. That we did a SPAC for a couple of months ago uh, in which we're putting together uh, a physical and digital uh, new type of of gaming company i am incubating a startup in the field of tele-religion I'm still in stealth mode but i'm excited about it just got off a three-hour brainstorm on it i run a consulting firm called tuss strategies like i mentioned and i think the most high profile thing we're doing at the moment is running andrew yank's campaign for mayor of new york city so that's pretty exciting i'm the ceo of tusk philanthropy so that's a foundation where we are funding and running the effort around the US to make it possible for people to vote in elections on their phones, because I think the only way to solve the, the kind of polarization problem is to have radically higher turnout. And for as long as you gerrymandering, turnout has to come in the primary. Average turnout primaries right now is about 10 to 15 percent. I think we can only bring things to consensus and moderation if we're more like 40 or 50 percent. That's only going to happen if people, people can vote on their phones. So we've Funded elections in eighteen different jurisdictions um, around the U.S. where either deployed military or people with disabilities have voted on their phones, and so far, so good. Have all been independently audited and come back clean, and turnout on average is doubled. We also fund and run campaigns around the issue uh, of childhood hunger, and we've passed Breakfast After the Bell and other programs like that. I think in the eleven states now, about two million more kids now have access to, to regular meals as a result. Separate from that, a little bit of media stuff. I write a column mm-hmm. for S Company. I host a, my own podcast called Firewall all about tech and politics. I Wrote a book about that stuff called The Fixer. Working on another book right now. I teach this stuff at Columbia Business School. Recently created something called the Gotham Book Prize, which we're giving out to the best books in New York City every year to help the city through a difficult time. And uh, I'm in the process of opening up a bookstore and podcast studio in Manhattan. So I think that's mainly what I do.
0: Perfect. Say you're a little busy. And I think that pretty much gives everyone an idea on why I wanted to bring you in. You recently wrote a column for Fast Company focused on how new tech hubs are growing, what San Francisco or Silicon Valley could be potentially risk losing what the opportunity is. I know there's a lot of online conversation about this topic right now, especially on Twitter, but I think your column really cut through a lot of the noise at what makes new cities attractive. So I'd love maybe if you could walk me through your argument there and some of the points you thought.
1: Yeah, we have seen both San Francisco and New York, especially really start losing businesses to other jurisdictions. So HP, Oracle, Dropbox, Tesla, almost to Texas, out of the Bay Area, Goldman Sachs, Carl Icahn, elite management, moving some or all of their operations from New York down to Florida. And the, the question is why? And I think there's a few reasons this ultimately happened. So the, the first is a little broader. I didn't really get into it in this particular column because it was like a separate column of itself that I to the Daily News earlier. but. If you look at the flight of manufacturing in the US in the second half of the 20th century, what really happened was at some point manufacturers realized, oh, I can make the same thing at good enough quality for a tenth of the cost in Taiwan, in Mexico, wherever it was. Once they realized that, there was no going back. There was that aha moment. Mm-hmm. And once it happened, th- there were efforts to incentivize people to stay here and Try to keep them, but at the end of the day, even if it was over a forty-year period, a lot of basic manufacturing left the United States. And cities that were totally manufacturing dependent, so uh, Cleveland, or Baltimore, or Detroit, have never really recovered. They occasionally run a PR campaign to say that they're recovering, but it, yep. it's
0: you know, Chamber of bad. Commerce is pumping a little bit of money out there.
1: Yeah, exactly. of mm-hmm. John but. The reason why cities like New York and San Francisco, um, while they lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, didn't end up suffering that much is because they were also, for different sectors, especially New York, the white-collar hub uh, Mm -hmm. of the U.S. And the perception was, if you are a big law firm, consulting firm, investment bank, tech company, advertising, marketing, media, whatever, go down the list, you had to be in one of those places or if it was entertainment, you had to be in, in Los Angeles. And I think, unfortunately, the office version of that aha moment happened during COVID, which was all of a sudden, everyone went to work from home, everyone went on Zoom, and the realization is, you know what? It's okay. Like, I think we'd all rather not have the limitations on our f- freedom that the quarantine imposes. We all go to lots dinner, or go to a ball game, or whatever it is. But basically... Like, My employees have been pretty much equally productive remotely as they are in person. The Mm -hmm. biggest challenge I have found is onboarding new people and training them harder in this kind of environment. But in terms of most people's day-to-day, if Rachel from our team, who's sitting here listening to us do the podcast, if Rachel said, hey, I really want to move to Austin, we would probably be able to accommodate her on it. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) or if she said, or someone else said, hey, I'm going to come to the office two days a week and work from home three days a week, what basis do I really have to say no? So the problem is at scale, when employers realize that, you know what, I don't have to be in New York. I don't have to be anywhere. And then all of a sudden, if I could be anywhere, do I want to be here? And then all the negatives, and and there's a lot of positives. And I I live in Manhattan and, and I hope to never leave. There's a lot of negatives too. Taxes are high. There's a lot of regulation. Office space is really expensive. As some of these cities start suffering through declines, crime goes up. Quality of life goes down. Homelessness goes up. And all of a sudden, the value proposition starts to shift, especially if a lot of the things that made these cities appealing in terms of entertainment and food and culture don't recover in the way post-COVID that they were pre-COVID. Then all of a sudden, the value proposition of these cities starts to really change. And you have employers saying, you know what? Uh, I, I can move somewhere else, save a lot of money. Those places are pretty good too. My employees will live with it. And I'd rather be in the nice weather all the time. And so that's the macro. And then the more specific piece that the Fast Corporate column about, was about is if you look at the cities that are really benefiting from it, they're blue cities in red states because they provide, at least in theory, a progressive liberal environment with emphasis on culture and mm-hmm. so take Austin as sort of the most creativity.
0: Yeah. I'm I am yeah. I, so from Texas. I grew up in Houston, but my family lives in Austin. So I've seen this right. all in real time.
1: Totally right. My my wife is from Austin. Her family lives there. And so I've been going there since the mid nineties and mm-hmm. like to see how it's grown is is pretty remarkable. But it's this place that is considered like this incredibly creative, fun, progressive city. And that makes it exciting for Tesla or Oracle or whoever it is or HP to say, hey, we're going to move our office to Austin, but guess what they also have? No state income tax Mm -hmm. and very few state (laughs) regulations. So being a blue city in a red state is a real sweet spot right now because you have all the cultural and normative attractions and arguments that New York or San Francisco would try to make, but then you also have a a far better economic situation for employers. You put those two things together and that becomes really hard to beat. And to to me, we've either got to, one, look at what's driving businesses out of New York and San Francisco and seriously say, hey, how do we stop that? And that sounds reasonable, but it's actually the opposite of the DSA agenda. And the political zeitgeist right now in those cities is on the far left. You can focus on canceling rent and defunding the police and raising taxes but it's probably only going to hasten the, the flight of businesses out of New York, out of California into other states. And, and while the goal of people on the far left, maybe they want to help working people, it's hard to help working people if there's no jobs for them to work. In. Ask the people in Detroit or Newark or Baltimore or Cleveland if they like things the way they are, if they'd rather they go back to where they were when there was a lot of jobs there. Pretty much 100% of people saying we wish there were a lot of jobs. So option A would be stop some of the behavior that's driving jobs and and companies out. The other option would be just flip the script and say, okay, let's turn Texas blue. Let's turn Georgia blue, blue. Let's turn Tennessee blue. And then in doing so, those states start to impose more taxes, more regulation, and the competitive disadvantage disappears to some extent, because all of a sudden you've made them more like you. And so Politically, you got people like me in New York or San Francisco who are engaged and active and have plenty of money to, to, to give to candidates. And you know, we focus on things like taking back the US Senate. And I was glad to see that happen in, in Georgia last week. But the reality is if, if you really care about your hometown, you may be better off investing in the governor's race or in state legislative races. And if you can't make your hometown a little less dark blue, then you might want to make some of these other cities a a little more blue to even things out.
0: Definitely a lot there to get to. I think the local piece of it all. And part of the reason why I'm personally just all passionate is I think the world would be a better place if everyone was engaged with their local government and their local issues a little bit more. And I think your point on Austin and some of these blue cities and red states that are becoming increasingly popular it's something that i'm hearing a lot from my friends from new york who are starting to look at these places to move they're certainly seeing it as i don't think they'd move to the more conservative areas of texas but austin is certainly a personally more creative place and place that's attractive to people so i'm curious and i don't want you to talk too much on specifics. I know you're involved on this in a lot of different ways, but when you're talking to local leaders, people who are in leadership positions, whether it's on the government side, whether it's in the nonprofit world or even active founders, corporate leaders active in the local community, what type of skills or qualities do we need in our local leaders to make the most of our cities and opportunity in front of us during this big shifting moment?
1: Yeah, look, it's a great question, and I'm somewhat, or maybe very much biased, because I work for, I think, the greatest mayor in New York history, and in many ways, the prototype of what you would want in a mayor in Mike book. So I'm heavily influenced by that. But having spent time working for Mike at City Hall, having run his mayoral campaign, here are the things that I saw that, to me, reflect a really good mayor and what you want. By the way, it's also why I chose to support Andrew Yang for mayor this time around, because I thought like Andrew came closer to checking those boxes that any of the other candidates did. And that's what appealed to me. And this is true, whether it's New York, San Francisco, or any kind of major city like that. So the, the first thing is, is town, right? Mm-hmm. So Mike, in part, because one, the upside of being the outsider that no one supports is if you win, you don't owe anybody, anything, mm-hmm. you come to city hall, and it's starting right. You have
0: your mandate and you can really start just doing what you want to do.
1: And hiring, you don't have when the runner from the system wins, they already owe every job to some political patron or some favor. And so instead of hiring a talent, they're hiring on politics. So When Bill de Blasio became mayor of New York, all the jobs administration got filled with hacks. But when Mike Bloomberg became mayor of New York, he said, you know what? I don't care about politics. I don't care about anything other than talent. So I am gonna hire the smartest people I can I don't care if they're from New York or Kat, or you know Kathmandu. And then I'm gonna make them hire all the smartest people they can find. And then once we're all here, I'm gonna give them talent to come up with big ideas and take risks. And if they fail, but they went about it the right way, that's totally fine. But you you and I mentioned you mentioned Dan Doctor off before I think we started recording. And Dan, if you think about it, who was Mike's deputy mayor and like a, a a recent legend in New York City government, his two biggest things failed, right? They, they were both right. He tried yeah. to get the Olympic and he tried to get congestion pricing, which, by the way, eventually did end up happening. So pricing takes terrible. time there. Dan was like literally 15 years out of his time. But the conventional person would have said, This guy just failed, you know, to big initiatives. You know what Mike did after Dan lost both of those? He made Dan CEO of Bloomberg LP of which Dan, by the way, did tremendously well and grew the company significantly. And it was a great choice. So the first thing is you got to be able to recruit talent and then you've got to empower them. And if you're willing to do that, a lot of good things can happen. If you made a list of the 100 best things that happened in the Bloomberg Mayoralty, I don't know that Mike thought of any of those 100 things. He created an environment and culture that made it possible for all 100 of those things to happen. So that's number one. Number two is... City government is an operational job. And I'll, I'll tell you a famous story. So, in the early 1970s, New York had a guy named John Lindsay as mayor. And Lindsay was this very dashing, good looking guy, really was thinking about, he, he saw himself as the next JFK. And in Chicago, the mayor was the original mayor, mayor daily, right? The ultimate
0: war insider. And,
1: yeah. Yeah. Like, absolutely couldn't be more different. And at least according to this story, they're at some dinner where they're both at it together at the same table, and Lindsay is going on and on about the Vietnam War and his opposition to it. And finally, Daly's had enough. And he leans over and he says, "Your job is to pick up the trash." And truth is, Daly, while there was a lot of bad things about Richard J. Daly, he was right in the sense that city government is an operational job, and your job is not to create. A certain type of society, I don't think. Your job is to give people a clean, safe place to live that makes it possible for jobs to want to be there, makes it possible for tourists to want to come, has good schools that people can send their kids to without having to move to the suburbs or pay for private school. And if you can create those conditions, really good things happen. But that means focusing on operations, it means making sure that the water is coming through the tap cleanly. It means making sure the traffic light is changing at the right intervals. It means making sure that the trash is being picked up in the right place at the right time every single day and the snow is being removed. You look at city government as some of the recent politicians in San Francisco have done or in New York as more of an ideological exercise and not an operational job, then you screw things up. And then ultimately the city gets uh, a lot less uh, palatable to live in, jobs go away. And that ultimately only hurts working people. So the the second thing would be you need a real focus on operations. And the third would be that you have to understand that it's a mosaic of things that make a city great. So if a city is only about millennials from really great schools working in high-paying jobs, and that's it, like that kind of sucks. They're having fun, but ultimately that's not a great city. But Mm. if it's a city that says, okay. If we can create as many opportunities as possible, whether it's private sector jobs, culture and nonprofit sector jobs, things in the advanced economy like tech, things that are service jobs, and we can give a lot of people a variety of things to do in the city, places to work, places to live, uh, housing that's affordable. If you can do that, you're going to take all the best elements of a city, put them together into one place And that's going to give you a great place to live. And that's what attracts talent and jobs and opportunity and everything else. But you've got to believe in that. Bill de Blasio, and I felt the whole podcast picking on Bill de Blasio, like he's never stepped foot on the high line. As a matter of principle, he opposes the high line. Now, anyone who listens Mm -hmm. to podcasts has been on the high line. It is lovely, right? It's a wonderful park that is open and free to anyone who wants to come there. If you look at the city as saying, I'm inherently opposed to 40% of it because they don't fit my ideology, then you're just going to miss the point. And that's what's happened.
0: Totally. And I think certainly, de Blasio has certainly, the narrative has shifted a lot recently, but I think the criticisms are pretty valid, even as someone who, frankly, my first job out of college was working on the de Blasio campaign in 2017. So... That's just my own personal history and things have changed a lot around the narrative. And really, I think the context around that has shifted a lot. I'm curious because I think obviously both of us are pretty optimistic about the opportunity at the local level for mayors, leaders to do a lot of exciting things. And I think that narrative and that theme seemed really true 12 months ago before COVID. But I think the job of the next generation of city leaders, mayors, it's a very different kind of job. You're not going to get to do the ambitious big projects and stuff. You're going to have to make a lot of tough decisions, cutting yeah. city services and doing hard things. So I'd love to maybe hear about your thoughts on that and what kind of the next few years yes. look like for leaders.
1: Sure. So the first thing is, in thinking about the Yang campaign, obviously, we're spending a lot of time, saying, okay, what should the next mayor be like? And what do the voters want to hear? What do they need to hear? Or what do we need to do? And I think it's a mix of a few things. So one is, you're right, there's got to be a focus, like I said before, on just getting shit done. Because like right now, New York City, they can't distribute the vaccines. They are literally so inept that we have vaccines sitting in this city and they're yeah. not getting people's arms because the basic functionality isn't there. So you need a mayor who's going to say, I'm going to make sure the vaccines get distributed or oh, God mm-hmm. willing, by the time the next mayor takes office, everyone, I've got one. I am this. Designed- we lost a million jobs during COVID and countless small businesses, restaurants, bars closed. I'm going to really focus on making it easier for them to reopen and really trying to give them a a chance to build that back. So a lot of it's got to be blocking and tackling. And at the same time, there are some really big bold items that also need to be addressed. So, you know, Yang is universal basic income is his big issue without giving anything away I think you expect to see that a lot in our our race in in Mm -hmm. the next few months so some of it is what are big new exciting things that we can do even in tough economic times and then some of it is what are the basics that have just not been addressed by the previous mayor it's funny you've seen the city of New York I think it's probably true in San Francisco to some extent as well really decline over time as as you went from a mayor focused on competence and operations like Bloomberg to a mayor just focused on ideology like de Blasio. Mm-hmm. In the early years, you still had this hangover of the systems that Bloomberg put in place, the people were still there and they were able to compensate for the lack of focus by the mayor's office. And then over seven, eight years, those people leave, they move on, they a trip. And yeah. eventually you start to see streets that are dirty, graffiti, urination, huge uptick in homelessness, city schools really getting much worse, all of that. And so you've got to be able to address that. But at the same time, I think voters do want to hear big ideas as well. And so whether it's New York, San Francisco, or other cities, I think the person who can say, "I I can make the trains run on time, but I also have some big thoughts and ideas, that's the person that I think will have the best shot.
0: I love how you put that, because I think I'm looking to figure out how I'm going to cover and look at the New York race, and particularly the primary race, since that's obviously where a lot of the action is for New York right now, based on just general election demographics in New York. So I'm curious That's when you're talking to people on the government side, political side, that's one side. But when you're talking to more people on this tech side, when you're talking to LPs on the venture side, when you're talking to startup founders who are maybe looking to relocate to new cities, what kind of advice or strategies are you giving or offering to them when they're choosing a place to embed themselves? And obviously the whole world's remote now and everyone can be wherever, but you have to pick some place to stick a flag in the ground.
1: Yeah, yeah. First of all, at least for New York, I try to convince them to stay because I love the city and I want it to do well.
0: It's a special place.
1: Yeah. But uh, sometimes it really just doesn't make sense for them. For for me, at least when I talk to people, I'll I'll go through, look, there may be, yes, taxes are high, but there may be tax incentives that you could qualify for that you're not aware of. There might be new rent discounts that are coming to place because there's so much vacant real estate. Uh, the because there, we've lost so many jobs, there may be a lot more willingness to try to be accommodating today, where you know, 10 months, 12 months, or whatever it was, they were just blowing you off completely. Just like, ironically, a lot of startups that have products that are controversial, but potentially really lucrative from a tax revenue standpoint, are going to benefit tremendously from COVID. Because all of a sudden, if you're a fan door, DraftKings, Or if if you're a cannabis company, everything you do is going to be legalized now, right? When times are really good, politicians say, I don't need the political heat of dealing with this issue. And the implementation is much slower. When the choice all of a sudden is not, I can do this mobile sports betting thing and and get some criticism or not, it doesn't really matter, then you don't do it. But if it's, I've got to slash funding for schools and hospitals, raise taxes, or let them just bet on their phone on the football games. All of a sudden, mobile sports, that doesn't sound so bad. So ironically, tech regulation in some of the really big cities over the last five years or so has been pretty harsh because when times are really good and the cities don't need money, it's politically feasible to be really anti-tech. So you see New York driving Amazon second headquarters out of town. You see San Francisco putting all kinds of new restrictions on short-term rental or Google buses or whatever it is. And they can afford to do that when things are really good, when all of a sudden they need the jobs, they need the revenue, they actually have to behave differently, especially when those companies are now just showing, yeah, we'll leave. And they're making that point. And so in a weird way, I think over the next couple of years, the regulatory and kind of political climate for startups and tech companies in some of the big cities might be more palatable and more pleasant than it has been the last few years. And I think on the federal side, it's gonna flip. So yeah. if you are Amazon, Google, Facebook, you know Apple, whoever it is, I think between antitrust threats, privacy legislation, the repeal of Section 230, far more aggressive Department of Labor and, and other uh, federal agencies, you're gonna have a harder time of it over the next couple of years. And then I think on the local level, it's going to be the
0: reverse. I think that's a lot of helpful context, particularly I'm sure a lot of readers are probably taking notes now at that because there are a lot of startup founders, people thinking about these issues, but that dichotomy between the federal and local level and how things are going to flip. You also recently wrote a column this week or last week on what's going on at the federal level. Um, I'd love if maybe you could explain a little bit about your column that was on the deplatforming of Trump, which is kind of text reaction there.
1: Yeah, I, I was. I, I wrote it mainly out of frustration because usually I, I read a, a monthly column for Fast company. So I'd written my column the week before, so I didn't owe them anything. But I was sitting there thinking, like, you know, eh, the, the same people that are freaking out right now and, and, and calling all these platforms left wingers and dictators and whatever else. The shoe was reversed. With 99.8 percent of Trump's presidency, he had a platform on Twitter and Facebook and. YouTube and all other things, and the answer is not that the politics shifted in the companies. The answer is the companies don't care. They're not conservative, they're not liberal, they're not good, they're not bad. They only believe in maximizing value to their shareholders and their executives, and that's it. Donald Trump was a guy, I think he's the worst human being in American history at this point, but like he was a godsend to Twitter, and you know that because when they banned him, Mm -hmm. the market value dropped $5 billion in one day. So. It's not that they didn't know this. They said, we're going to keep this guy on the platform for as long as we possibly can, because the only thing we care about are clicks and eyeballs, because that generates revenue. Um, and whether you're Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or, or any these other platforms, you want to maximize uh, utility and, and you want to maximize you know, eyeballs. So they did not know what Trump was like. They just said, OK, we are going to keep this guy on until the last possible second when it becomes politically impossible for us to do so. And the cost of having him outweighs the benefit. And then we'll kick him off. So we got to that point after what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, where the cost suddenly outweighed the benefit, where you had employees freaking out. You had customers that were upset. Uh, but most important, you had advertisers that were saying, look, I'm getting a lot of pressure Facebook to not advertise on your platform if you're giving Trump a forum. And they hear from enough of those advertisers. And all of a sudden, the same people that are telling them up until that moment, we don't care what the politics are, just get us as many eyeballs as possible, and we'll pay you as much as we can. Now, all of a sudden, we're saying, look, we don't want the heat on this thing. So we can't be advertisers on Twitter, if you're going to give Trump a, a continued platform. And that's what caused him to do it. All this talk that it's The ideology of these platforms on one side or the other, it's what's determining all of this. It's not ideology. It's just business. And that's it. Their political decisions are predicated on anything but politics.
0: I think that was something I really appreciated with the column, because I think certainly anything around Trump and the politics at the federal level gets heightened. There's a lot of discourse and loud voices on both sides. And I think your column really cut through that, I think, and spoke to something that I saw in all of it last week for why it would make sense for the companies to finally make the move. Cause I feel like people thought that like they haven't been thinking about this every day and every single tweet, particularly for Twitter, since that was like the big following one. So I really appreciate that point on the column. And I guess that I think connects well to the next up. I wanted to get your thoughts on. i I know you're super involved with mobile voting, increasing participation. That seems like for me, when I look at a high level, the only way to really fix things at a macro level with the government and all policy issues, just get more people engaged. So I'd love to hear some updates on that project and what you're working on there.
1: Yeah, sure. So look, just to give a little bit of background, I know I mentioned it a little earlier when I was going through the stuff I'm up to, but so I, I, I've worked in government, at lots of different levels. I've worked in city government, state government, federal government, executive branch, legislative branch, different parts of the country. I've run campaigns. So I feel like I've seen the system pretty inside out. And the main takeaway I have is that all policy outputs are driven by political inputs. And that the 99% of people who run for office desperately need the validation and affirmation that comes with being somebody and holding it. it literally fills a hole in their psyche. Mm-hmm. And expecting them to do anything to put that at risk is just unreasonable. You're asking say, okay, th- your human nature is this, but instead I expect you to do that. It doesn't happen. So take guns. There's a, a school shooting. There's thoughts and prayers and vigils and calls for change, and then do you ever see a assault weapon ban happen? No, and the reason why you don't see it happen is, say you're a Republican congressman from Florida, and turnout in your primary is 12 percent. The district is gerrymandered, so the only election that really matters is the primary. You probably know intellectually that it's insane that someone can walk in off the street and walk out with an AK-47, but the 12 percent of voters in the primary, guess what? Half are NRA members, and if you vote for an assault weapon ban, you lost every single. And so you're saying, yes, I could maybe do this thing, but I would be sacrificing the rest of my career to do so. And guess what? They don't do it ever. And that's true on both sides of the aisle. I'm independent at this point. I hate both parties and think they're both wildly corrupt. And so nonetheless, the way that, that we try to get things done is totally wrong because we say, OK, I understand all of your interests and incentives are here, but you should still do the thing because it's the right thing to do. That doesn't work. And if you want different outputs, you need different inputs. And ultimately, right now, when, when primaries average turnout of 10 to 15%, who is that? That's either the furthest left or the furthest right. And it's big special interests who can move money in those little turnout elections and therefore really influence the outcome. So we talked about this earlier. New York in 2019 rejected Amazon's HQ2, which was a disastrous decision because we then lost a million jobs in COVID. We could have desperately used those jobs. But the politicians from the district that really led the fight against it, politically, were exactly right in what they were doing, which is they said, okay, yeah, 60% of my district may support this and 70% of the city may support this, but in a random 10% of the 10 to 20,000 people actually show up and vote in my primary, they hate Amazon. And so I don't need to make everybody happy. I just got to keep these blue the t- and as a result, for as long as turnout was really low, all the political incentives were to oppose the deal, not support it. And they did oppose it, they killed it. And then the best sort of evidence of that is they all came up for re-election in the primaries last June, and all the leaders got re-elected with over 70% of the vote, would turn out of about 10% in their elections. But now imagine the same race, turnout were 40%, 50%. If you, it, you look at the polling, then all of a sudden, okay, half of the district is voting, they want this Amazon deal. So now you're flipping completely because you want to stay in office. So therefore now you're saying, I support Amazon. Now you're saying I support assault weapon ban because most people don't think you should have to buy an NAK-47 off the street. But most people go to Republican primary still differently. There's so many different issues where 70% of the country agrees on basic principles of so guns. Most people agree that you should know if to go buy a gun wherever you want, any kind you want, whenever you want it. And most people wouldn't support walking into every home in the U.S. and confiscating everyone's guns. right? That's 70%. But the 15% of the left and the right who don't hold either of those views, they're the ones who actually vote, so they're the ones who matter. Immigration. Most people don't support deporting everyone here illegally, nor do they support having completely open borders and letting anyone walk in from anywhere. But again, that 70% doesn't vote in the primary, so they don't really matter. If we want to see consensus on issues like healthcare, climate, education, guns, immigration, whatever it is, we actually have the consensus in terms of the views. We don't have it in terms of the influence, and that's because people don't vote. So when I was running all the campaigns to legalize ride-sharing back in the kind of 2011, 12, 13, that that range, the way that we beat Taxi at the time, we were this tiny little startup, and Taxi was this powerful cartel with all kinds of political muscle. But the way that we won, that we were able to turn our customers into political advocates. Right? So all of a sudden, people who never vote in a, in a primary, generally are politically disengaged, are being, getting an, an alert on the app saying, look, if you like this thing, if you like just pressing a button and getting a car instead of out of hope that cab happens to come by and it stops for you, you've got to say something because otherwise it's going to go away. And if you press this button, it will connect you to your city councilman, state rep, state senator, whoever the relevant person was in that particular situation. And as a result, millions of people over a period of years ended up weighing in on behalf of Uber and behalf of Rideshare. And we won in every single jurisdiction in the United States. It is legal in every, not legal everywhere in the world, but everywhere in the U.S. I we thinking as this was happening, man, if we could vote like this, it would change everything. But at the time, the technology around it wasn't quite there. But then kind of two things happened. One is blockchain really developed, cloud really developed. Two is I had taken my fee and Uber in equity back at the Series A and, and held on to it. And all of a sudden it became worth, by the time they were yeah. ready to go public, a, a lot of money. And I said, okay, A, the technology there. B, I can fund this thing myself now. Mm-hmm. And so the mobile voting project, like I mentioned, we have supported financially and funded all of the costs of administering elections in 18 different jurisdictions around the U.S., some in liberal states like Washington and Oregon, and some in really Republican states like West Virginia and Utah and South Carolina, where people have been able to vote in their primaries on the phone. So far, we focused on two demographics, deployed military, because it's almost extra insulting that you're literally risking your life to protect our right to vote. And then we don't bother to vote, then your vote isn't actually counted because by the time the ballot gets mailed from Kandahar, the election happened a month ago and it gets thrown in mm-hmm. the trash. Or people with disabilities. Because if you are blind or you are deaf, especially if you're blind, um, you don't really have privacy uh, of the ballot and the ability to vote. And those were two groups that we were able to really make the case that, hey, let's give them a chance to do this on their phone instead. Some were done over the cloud, some were done over the blockchain. But in all 18 cases, the National Cybersecurity Center independently audited each election. They all came back secure. Now, these are small amounts of votes, 5,000 votes, 2,000 votes, 600 votes. So, yeah, North Korea is not targeting two counties in West Virginia. I understand that. But it worked. And more important, turnout on average more than doubled because guess what? It was a lot easier. And that, not shockingly, just like every single other app has proven, when you reduce friction, you get pickup. So that's where we are. One of the things that I realized and the team realized kind of in the second half of last year is. The company's doing the work for great companies, but they're running very small scale elections. And to me, while I'm happy to make it easier for people with disabilities to vote or deployed military to vote, my goal is to make it possible for everyone to be able to vote on their phones. because what I really want to do is get turnout in those primaries up from 10, 15% to 40, 50% because that's what forces, that changes the inputs, changes the political incentive, and that's what changes the policy outputs. And so we have now... We did an RFP process uh, in the second half of 2020, asking companies to apply to have us fund the construction of new mobile learning technology. It put $10 million into the project, but it's completely nonprofit. Whatever we build will be open source and given away to governments. 25 different companies and, and academic entities applied. We're down to the final four and hopefully making a selection pretty soon. And we will fund the creation of this new technology where we can really show that we can securely transmit hundreds of thousands of votes or millions of votes, or even in the presidential election, tens of millions of votes online, as opposed to just being a couple of thousand votes. So we're making that choice soon and that's the next frontier. And
0: definitely my first question What's it like talking to people in government who technology might not be their first strong suit when you're talking to them about blockchain? I'm sure there's probably a lot of confusion around cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Is oh, that how oh, often wow. does that happen? Yeah, how often does that
1: happen? You well, know, 100% of the time, people confuse blockchain and mm-hmm.
0: Bitcoin.
1: You know, I, why am I going to, I don't need Bitcoin for my election. You don't. We well, agree. Bitcoin yeah. has nothing to do with this. But, and, and once you kind of explain, blockchain is just plumbing, right? Bitcoin is ideological conceit. One that I, I happen to generally be sympathetic to, but you can make a perfectly valid argument for or against Bitcoin ideological grounds. Mm-hmm. Saying that the blockchain is ideological it's like saying that the gas pipes underneath your house are ideological. It's just a way to transmit data more securely from point A to point B. That's all it is. So once we explain that, it helps a little bit. It's interesting because we've had pickup uh, from some election officials on both sides of the aisle is there are people whose personality, is to innovate and try new things. And those people, regardless of what their political party is, are the people who have gravitated towards this, the ones that we've worked with. And there are a lot of people who are really risk averse and afraid of trying new things, even if trying those things would really make a material difference when doing their jobs better. And they're going to to see a lot more proof of concept before we get them there.
0: It's definitely, I think, an issue I'm figuring out how I want to cover and look at it particularly more at the local level. But obviously, it's all connected to the federal government and everything there, as well Since the national conversation around elections is pretty tense right now, to say the least. I think not to pivot too much right, right now. You've had, you have an amazing background. I think one of my favorite things that sticks out from your background is you started in New York. I know you worked for the mayor of Philly, but in New York, you started in the parks department. I'm personally yeah. a lover of New York city parks department. And I think it's the best park system. I, I love LA parks. They're great. And that's where I live now. But I think New York city parks department is some of the best parks department in the world. Truly. Yeah. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. What's the most underrated park in New York, in your opinion, and what type of innovation in public space are you thinking of, are think seeing on the it, investment side?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. So that there was this kind of, re- and I feel proud that I was part of this, very small part of it, but in the kind of 19, mid-1990s and early 2000s, a real re- revitalization of New York City's parks where uh, there was a lot more effort on, on making them cleaner, mm-hmm. more fun, more activities. And safer and also oh, really investing in capital infrastructure to build new playgrounds, new facilities, things that people could really take advantage of. And that really transformed the entire system. So there's 28,000 acres of parkland in New York City, which you wouldn't expect in a concrete go like this, but there is. There are over 2,000 parks and playgrounds um, in New York City. And, and And a lot of them are really wonderful. One that I think is really interesting is Morningside Heights Park, yeah. up by Columbia University, mm-hmm. and it is a park that is, has incredible natural beauty. It has a wooded area, it has cliffs, but it had been very dangerous for a very long time like in the 1980s and early mid 1990s. and had developed a terrible reputation. Columbia students were afraid to go in there. By the way, it's where Andrew Yang is launching his campaign tomorrow, but Heck is he went to Columbia? But it, uh, and then the city kind of got safer and better, and all of a sudden, this park got opened up again, and people could start really using it and enjoying it, and it made a huge difference. And then, as we talked a little while ago about, if you have a bad mayor for long enough, things start sliding back. this parks are getting more dangerous again, and a, a young Barnard student, named Tessa Majors, was stabbed to death in the park by a group of kids. She was there trying to buy weed, which was illegal although it should be legal but it was and something went wrong and 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 she was killed and and that really showed kind of the the rise of that park and the fall of that park and i think hopefully it can rise again Uh, and so that's a place that i really love i live downtown to the parks closest to me union square park madison square park washington square park's not that far when my kid my kids are 14 and 11 now but when they were little I spent all of our time at the playgrounds and really knew the ins and outs of every little kind of corner playground on a, on a different street. I, there was one I remember on 11th or it was 12th between A and B that was like the most beautiful playground. And it was so out of the way for people that like, it was, there was always tons of space. It was like the most lovely place. Maybe that in some ways, I forget what it was called. So that's the, the answer on. Which parks I like?
0: Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that.
1: Yeah, great. In in terms of innovation, look, I haven't seen that much in recent years, simply because the de administration here in New York has not focused on innovation. Right? They've been pretty hostile to innovation. So as a result, the commissioners of the agencies have not been encouraged um, to embrace innovation. I think they've been encouraged to turn away from it. You can envision a world where construction technologies improve significantly that you could meaningfully bring down the cost of building a playground or building fencing or building new uh, benches or anything else. Maybe you don't necessarily need the workforce to do it. Maybe you can do it with robots. Maybe it's all prefab. But ultimately, the system is completely dependent on how much money gets invested in it. And if you could rebuild a playground for $500,000 instead of a million dollars, guess what? You can build two playgrounds instead of one. And so I think, at least on the construction tech side, there's probably a lot of opportunity to bring costs down. Politically, it might be hard because people would say that you're hurting union jobs. But from the ability of del- delivering the greatest good to 8.6 million New Yorkers, that may be a way to do it.
0: I think that's something that I'm thinking more about, honestly. Your first part of your answer, certainly, I lived in New York, was lucky enough to live there for three years and brought me back a ton of memories. So I lived in the financial district for a year, and then I lived in Williamsburg for two years. So my answer would be McCarran Park. I think I have a lot of fond yeah. memories of going there on um, June's my favorite month in New York City. I think it's when the weather's perfect. And so going out and just laying out on a blanket would get summer Fridays at work, and it was perfect.
1: McCarran Park, and then the state built that park. I think it's called Bushwick Park, but it's... yeah right on the water my daughter played soccer there for for a season and so i was going there every weekend on the out train and yeah great now williamsburg has some great parks and one of the people can you know d- debate the kind of gentrification of williamsburg debate all the construction in williamsburg as a result of some of the zoning deals that have gotten done developers have had to build even more parks so i like found the sugar factory
0: side yeah i worked on that project. When I was working on the political press side, that was one of the first projects I worked on was Domino. So oh, I have a oh. very special affection for that project and Domino Park specifically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think the, you know, Jad and, and Two Trees have really done a great job in really turning Dumbo into a special neighborhood and Williamsburg into a special neighborhood.
0: They're very smart. And I think have a very urban kind of mindset towards it all. I think towards walkability and all of that. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you're obviously got some big things going on right now, including a mayoral election to work on. But is there anything that I didn't ask you that you thought of during the conversation that I should have, or just anything you want to leave the audience with? Uh,
1: So usually when I get asked that question, i say mobile voting, but you actually asked me about mobile Okay. Talk about the Gotham book prize for one second.
0: Please. I love books and I love supporting local authors and writers. So please go for it.
1: When Uh, You probably know at least of Howard Wilson or maybe you dealt with him in in your time in in New York City politics. So Howard and I, for a couple of years, were surprised that there was no prize given every year to the best book set in New York City. And maybe we kind of cool thing to create that. And then when COVID really hit and started really decimating the city, our our thought was, this two New Yorks, right? So if you live in New York, it's the physical, real... New York. It's the streets, it's the playgrounds, it's the subways, it's the schools. But then for the rest of the world, there's a New York that exists in a conceptual realm in books, in movies, TV shows, in songs. And it's that New York that clearly has so much appeal that people from all over the world say, I want to be there, right? And for as long as the best and the brightest, most talented people from all over the world say, this is the place that I want to be. You're going to keep bringing smart people into the city and that's going to give you a chance to survive. And so our thought was, there's not that much that we as individuals could really do to change kind of the physical plight of the city from a philanthropic standpoint over the next couple of years. But that mystique about New York if it remained and people were incentivized to keep writing about New York and making movies about New York and everything else, then that will help keep that mystique and that, that aura alive and really help ultimate New York long-term. And so we set up the Gotham Book Prize. we we'll get $50,000 each year to the best book set in New York City. We're announcing the nominees on Monday and then we'll now award the first prize in April. And my hope is, I mentioned in the Earlier on, i uh, negotiating a lease to open up a bookstore and podcast studio on the Lower East Side. It's actually uh, Orchard Street, a couple of blocks from where my grandfather in the 1950s had a store called P.T. Knitware when Jews basically could include uh, District and that world was basically their main opportunity. Mm-hmm. In fact, I love the idea of bringing it full circle and, and opening up a store that I hope to call P.T. Knitware. And really sell books and create some retail jobs in New York. And there's lots of shops are, st- are closing. Hopefully give New Yorkers a place that they can be proud of.
0: I think that project specifically speaks honestly to me, so I grew up in the suburbs of Houston watching a lot of great art about New York and cities, and that was part of the reason that brought me to Syracuse where I went to college and eventually led me to living in New York. So, I love to hear that you're working on that and continuing to tell great stories about New York. So, that's awesome, and best of luck on the bookshop great. and the podcast studio. I know obviously retail is a crazy time right now and opening any sort of physical location is a battle. So, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I hope I can talk to you again yeah, soon. Yeah, it's an incredibly
1: smart podcast. I really enjoyed
0: it. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much, Bradley. One final ask before I go, please continue to share the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. Anyone who could benefit from learning about how tech is changing our cities more and more every day. Thanks. And I'll talk to you soon.